Capitol Police One advisor trying to breach and get into the Capitol. It's a day the United States will never forget. January 6th. It's been weaponized for political reasons and athletic ones. Where were Dayton fans on January 6th? Does Keith Dambrot know the QAnon shaman? Did VCU fans defecate in the hallways? Tonight, we try to answer one question. Which Atlantic 10 fan base has the most insurrectionists? I'm Lil Bon X. I'm John Rothstein. Hi-ho, I'm Kermit the Frog. I'm Mark Schmidt. Those stories and more tonight on SB Unfailed and Friends. Welcome everybody to episode 57 of SB Unfurled and Friends. Will Bon X here with SB Unfurled. Let us be not the first, probably like the 800th person, to wish you a happy new year and a merry January 6th. That's coming up on Saturday. More on that in a bit, but thank you all again for joining us here in the new year. We ended 2023 with a bang of Bonnie's one-point victory in the land. What'd you think of that, Unfurled? I thought it was the best team win of the season, to be quite honest. Um, so you had two guys really for Akron, Enrique Freeman and Ali Ali, who I, you know, those two are Akron's best players. They played really well. And if you told me going in, like, no points for Adams Woods at halftime, no points for Pride at halftime, um, you know, Asa is going to not play v- very well banks isn't going to play very well um i'm saying that's that's going to be a loss but you had noel brown step up uh, a ton you had uh, barry evans play really well even though he, he only scored four points he was still the ken palm mvp just because of all the things that he did um kyra luke had i think his best game of the season um and venning was really good as well so um you know the specialty stats for the bonnies were really what um, I thought gave us the best team win of the season. Uh, you had, I uh, had it up here, 19 to two. This is a halftime, I think, or in the second half, 19 to two bench points, Bon advantage, 14 to two points in the paint, 10 to two second chance points. That was um, as the game was going on. And then, you know, Micah Adams Woods, the onions at the end, and then Evans and Venning, that that defensive possession at the end, just an all-around team win. Um, so it, it felt really good because it could have gone easily the other way, um, especially with some of the calls that, you know, that one five-point possession that Akron had, total bullshit flagrant on Brown. It, it did not feel like a neutral site game from the broadcast to, you know, the whistle. and um, But, you know, you found a way to gut out a win, go into a 10 play on a, on a really good note. I would give the the overall non-conference schedule 
um, our performance. I, I th- like I said on Twitter, you know, I think the Canisius loss brings it down a full letter grade. I'd probably give it a B or a B minus, you know, some missed opportunities, no true, true committee statement wins. But um, other than that, that first loss, you know, pretty solid overall performance. And the Akron game, I, I thought, you know, guys were really, really filling into their roles off the bench really well. Yeah, I kind of want to get into the last two possessions because it felt like we were in good control that whole game, although it wasn't a blowout by any means at any point. It was, you know, pretty tight all the way around. But those final two possessions, I think, are a good indicator of what we need to see come March and even February and, you know, in all 2024. Because A-10 play starts on Wednesday, today, if you're listening to it, on Wednesday. But yeah, those final two possessions, when Mike Adams-Woods gets the running, I don't even want to call it a layup, it was like a five-foot jumper, which, like you mentioned, was definitely a foul. Like it is yeah. so fortunate that we weren't left with us complaining about the refs because mm-hmm. that was absolutely a foul. I thought overall it was a generally okay game, other than that stupid, uh, the stupid flagrant foul. We always get a phantom flagrant every single game for some reason, and that that foul on Freeman should have been called, and it would have made it a two point game. So it, you know, Akron <laughs> could have still won with a three if we're going to play the what if game, but then you get into Barry Evans and that deflection and how it stopped Ali Ali from getting any kind of momentum and also allowed Chad Venning to come out and help out in that situation, which is really a good full circle moment for Chad, because I didn't realize this until they mentioned it on the broadcast. So the one good, one good shining uh, moment for the Akron broadcasters, they mentioned that Venning has lost, I believe 90 or 95 pounds since he was at Morgan state, his freshman year. That's, you know, he definitely wouldn't have done that at Morgan State. He definitely wouldn't have been yeah. able to close out like that. So that was, you know, just speaking to that total team effort, when you have Barry Evans only scoring four points and as the MVP, you know that's a total team effort. Only Benning mm-hmm. was in double digits, I believe. And, yeah, it was just a tremendous performance. And that's the kind of late-game situation basketball that we need to refine since there are plenty of stretches um, in plenty of better seasons or just as good of seasons where we've completely melted down in the last minute or so. And I don't necessarily chalk it up to Schmidt not being able to coach in those scenarios. I chalk it up to players just dribbling off their own feet or throwing the ball into the backcourt for no reason or God knows what else could happen. We've seen those moments plenty of times as Bonaventure fans, and this was not an example of that. Just like the Oklahoma State game, those are our only two games that I would consider clutch moments. Uh, Canisius was yeah. a close game in the end, but that's because we screwed up and we don't need to rehash that. But I think that was very important to have that late game execution with that ISO ball at the end for Mike Adams Woods and trying to you know create some separation as well as Barry Evans and Chad Benning doubling on Ollie at the end. Yeah, and credit Schmidt for the lineups and the substitutions that he had. Um, I know uh, there are a, a lot of people who have been frustrated about the lack of bench and depth over the last four or five years or however many years um you know i've i've said too like it's not so much that he won't play a bench it's that he's just gonna play the best players and the guys that he trusts so if he does have eight or nine guys that he trusts i mean he did it back in 2012 there have been other teams who have had a little bit of depth um this is the best depth i think we've had in about a decade or more 
And, you know, like I already said, the bench stepped up. So he had a, a really good lineup in there at the end. He was subbing, you know, offense, defense, having Barry in for that last possession. Adams Woods did a really good job covering the inbounder. Barry Wood or Barry Woods. Uh, <laughs> Barry Evans knocked it free uh, on the pass that didn't didn't let them set up the play that they had. And like you said, venting on the perimeter like and you remember we went up 57 50 on that awesome venting, funny, awesome uh, the the on the perimeter venting getting the steal and going coast to coast and tomahawking it in we go up 57 50 we have all of that momentum it looks like we're about to you know have a knockout blow to akron and kind of maybe run away with this or have it be at least comfortable um but then we immediately gave up five straight points uh there was a bad switch that led to a wide open three we had a bad turnover that led to a layup, and immediately they're right back into it. Um, went right down the stretch. I felt like our two offensive possessions were pretty mismanaged. Um, those two last ones, I think there was like an air ball. We we actually took 45 seconds off the clock, which we had the lead, and I was kind of okay with. But um, you know, taking the time off is fine when you have the lead like that. But we just didn't really get into a rhythm down the stretch. Akron is playing pretty good D. Um, and then they got a bucket to pull it within one, they take the lead. And then, you know, as you, as you already rehashed, we, we went into the Adams woods onions, uh, definitely a foul with how that game was called. I thought there were some cheap fouls on Asa as well, but, um, yeah, so credit really credit to everyone. Honestly, uh, Daryl banks played the least amount of minutes he's played as a Bonnie. He only played 16 minutes last season. The least amount of minutes he played was 27. So, um, you kind of wonder if that's going to be more of his average 15 to 20 minutes, especially against a team like VCU. They have big wings. Their, their point guard is six, five, um, Shulga at shooting guard is six four, and then Bearstow, their three man is six eight. That can be a huge mismatch problem, and that is a big mismatch problem against most teams. And I know this is supposed to be Akron thing, but you know, just just getting into the the lineups that we saw, I really don't want Barry Evans to be locked into the four position. Barry Evans is the no. definition of a positionless basketball player. Um, but since pride has been back, um, he has been locked into that four spot. When pride was out with his injury, Evans shifted down to the three since pride has been back. It seems like Evans so far exclusively coming in for Asa. I, I, I would love to see Evans and Asa out there together against VCU. They have really big wings, really good shooters, and we really need Evans' perimeter defense and size out there. So I think we would both agree that Evans' emergence has been the biggest surprise of non-conference play. What do you think is the biggest thing that we still need to correct going into A-10s, considering what we've seen in the non-conference? Because I still think that there are too many stretches of offensive stagnation i still think there are times when we should be trying to get charles pride involved a little bit more in the scoring end of things and yeah yeah, i think i would love to see asa and and banks really start to click so what do you think needs to be fixed as we get into a 10 play there are stretches where we kind of there's some bad turnovers we you know there's some bad we are going under screens and allowing open threes just cleaning that type of stuff up 
there's going to be a lot of close games in the A10, and every single possession matters, whether it's in the first five minutes or the last five minutes. Like, I just I think there are a lot of possessions that we don't really value the basketball as much as we should. Again, against Akron, we stepped on the on the sideline again. Um, <laughs> the Planutus, the Planutus yeah, strikes it, every, <laughs> at least once a game, um, and we were by no means our turnovers killing us overall this year, but um, I think it we really only had takes, seven against Akron, so it wasn't yeah the worst. really really. No, but it's it just seems like they're always in really bad spots, um, right. <laughs> and it, and when they happen, it seems like it breaks our offense for like four minutes or three minutes, and it gets us out of the flow. Um, so cleaning that stuff up and you know finding the hot hand, I, I feel like it was the Niagara game. Asa didn't take a shot in the first half. Meanwhile, you have Venning taking threes. Uh, you know, pride, like you said, isn't always as involved as he should be. And there is some stagnation when shots are falling and like Adams Woods and, and Moses Flowers are top 100 in the country in three point shooting that has masked a lot of it because when they weren't on, it looked like the game against Bucknell or Canisius and it just guys standing around making shots masks a lot of that. But I just, I would like to see us get some of our uh, other guards and wings better looks like I, I want to see banks, coming out, curling off a screen uh, and, and getting the ball, catching and shooting. He sh- he's a catch and shoot guy. Whenever he's been putting the ball on the ground and dribbling, trying to dribble into lane and, and maybe press a little bit too much or do a little too much, it's, it has ended in a turnover way more than it should. So like he was really good when he curls off the screen and he has a, he has a way of drawing fouls while shooting three pointers too. There's been a lot of times where he's gone to the line for three shots because he's drawn a foul, kicking his legs exactly. out or, or whatever. It would be frustrating if you're an opponent, but if you're on, if you're on our team, I, I like seeing that because that's three shots at the line. So yeah, getting guys like pride and banks shots, where they should be as well as Asa, I think. And then just cleaning up some of the, some of the, the bad mindless mistakes that we make that seem to really take us out of our rhythm. So you said it, you'd give us about a B B minus in the non-conference. Canisius is obviously the big mess up, although it could be worse. We could be St. Joe's having Texas A&M commerce hanging around our neck. And Canisius yeah. seems like they're at least somewhat competent in the Mac this year. So hopefully they yeah. keep that up once Mac play really heats up. Is there any other big missed opportunity you see out of out of this non conference for us? Auburn, it never seemed like we were in it. No. So I wouldn't say that. Uh Florida Atlantic and Bucknell, like but the Bucknell game tanked some of our metrics because of how poorly we played, but you got the win and you know it's it's green on your team sheet. And I would say Florida Atlantic, like we played awesome defensively. Um, we controlled most of the first half and then they went in with a one point lead or maybe we were only up one at halftime. Um, that was one of the best defensive games we played. We were locked in. We just could not hit our three. So if we had just yep. hit a couple more threes, I think we were like four of 20 from deep or something. So I thought that was a, a probably the biggest missed opportunity. They go around, turn around and beat Arizona, who is what, number one in the country, and then yep. lose to FGCU. Um so yeah, I mean we should have played. Were, <laughs> yeah. You, so we should have played there. Yeah. Yes. And we are playing 30 games now instead of 31 because of that. So we'll go there next year instead. 
But um, if you're talking missed opportunities, there aren't. I mean, we only lost three games, so there's only three options. Canisius, obviously, if I had to pick between Auburn and Florida Atlantic, definitely Florida Atlantic. I thought we could have taken advantage of uh, their second lowest scoring game of the season. And, you know, that would have been the marquee win because we don't really have a win where a committee is going to look at it and be like, oh, wow, Bonas beat. Right. This team, we don't really have that, you know, like Akron's a, a solid win. Oklahoma State's a solid win. But those are, you know, Q2, Q3 games. Um, so I yeah, if I could have one back and I was thinking about this, too, would I rather have a, a win against Canisius or a win against Florida Atlantic? Do you eliminate the bad loss or do you, do you give yourself a really good win? I would take the good win, um, especially since Canisius doesn't look like a slouch this year. Um, I, I I would like to have that Florida Atlantic game back and just have a little bit better shooting in that one. Yeah, and I'll go one other place with what I would like to correct out of the eight, uh, the non-conference schedule. I think in hindsight, this Oklahoma State win, we really should have beaten them by a few more points. Like, I'm not saying we should have dominated them, but they are not looking like that great of a team. They lost that really bad Notre Dame team that we fortunately avoid playing. Um, they lost mm-hmm. to Abilene Christian at the beginning. You know, those rough losses to Creighton in Southern Illinois. On Wednesday, instead of opening up Big 12 play, they're going to be playing against America's team, Chicago State, the Cougars, and the independent, the one remaining independent in college basketball in D1. <laughs> so, you know, hopefully they don't lose that game and really nuke our metrics. By the way, yeah. I cannot wait for Chicago State to play Duquesne on January 31st. All of America should be rooting for Chicago State to beat Duquesne that night. That's for what? sure. Really? But, why did Duquesne yeah. like? Why did Duquesne do that in the middle of a ten play? I don't know. That's, Check Keith Dambrot's uh, bank accounts, I guess. Instead no. of no. instead of getting your guys a rest on their week off, you play that team. What's what so. is there to gain? I guess I don't I don't get it, but okay. You know what? It's okay because Chicago State will will get a nice win at the uh, whatever they're calling that UPMC Center, whatever they call it. But yeah, yeah, that's um. You know, I I think Oklahoma State is not going to be that good. However, I do think our metrics will get a little better with that win because the Big Twelve is so challenging, and even in losses, they'll they'll improve for Oklahoma State. But yeah, yeah. let's get into the Bonnie's at large chances and VCU here with our next friend. We would like to welcome back a recurring friend here on SB Unfurled and Friends. He is a very knowledgeable source of information when it comes to bracketology, the net, and he's also a dirty, dirty VCU homer. Rusty Tutton, a.k.a. Bracket Forecast, is here joining us to not only talk about Bonas and our slim at-large hopes, but also game one of two against VCU. Rusty, welcome back, man. Thanks, guys. I'm also here to talk Confederate history if you need, need any, and, and January 6th if you need any uh, any history on that. You're going to get ready for our January 6th segment coming up because you're going to love it. <laughs> I'm excited. Be there. We'll be wild. <laughs> but thank you for joining us, Rusty. <laughs> yeah, of course. So when you look at the Bonnies so far in our non-conference, we missed out on two awesome chances for Q1 wins. And of course, Canisius is the the one turd in the punch bowl that pretty much every A-10 team seems to have. Just just from a, like a 
a broad view. What do you think of the Bonnies and our resume so far? I mean, you know, and it's like this, there's this dichotomy because like the Kinesis loss is not that bad because Kinesis is 133 in the net. So that's quad three. And like guarantee you almost every team like for the like lower end of the bubble is going to have at least one of those, like half of them are going to have quad fours. Um, I know like Texas A&M was a seven seed last year and had two quad four losses. Utah state had two quad fours last year. So like losing a quad three game, is just not a big deal. You know um, the biggest the problem is, of that this like, year though? FAU. What? They got now two quad four losses. You know, they lost to Bryant and then they lost at Florida Gulf Coast. So we were supposed to play at Florida Gulf Coast, which that's a whole nother issue. But yeah, they what are you gonna do like with all these Q four losses that all these teams get? <laughs> well, it's become more common the past couple of years. I think, you know, I was talking to um another buddy on my of mine on Twitter. Like, you know, it's kind of more of a phenomenon the past couple of years, I think, in part because you've got a lot of the fifth year um, seniors from the COVID year playing on these like low major or like mid major rosters. So, you know, the the sort of bottom of the net uh, bottom teams are going to be better than they are, you know, more experienced, more composed than they historically are. Um, and so I think that that's a that's a big piece of it. Um, I also think that, you know, there's just more, there's just more parity in college basketball. And, you know, the other thing too, is like, because of the portal, you just have, there's more volatility roster wise. So like just early in November, like nobody knows what the F they're doing. So (laughs) it's like these, these results can be super random. Um, But, you know, as far as like, you know, to me, your missed opportunity was FAU. Because you guys, like, I watched the entire game, and I was very frustrated because you guys, like, basically won 30 to 35 minutes of that game, and you just had, like, five to seven minute breakdown where you lost it. Um, and that would have been, and, like, the thing is, like, you just need, like, two quad one. If you're a mid-major, you typically just need, like, two quad one wins to get, like, be in the at-large picture. Um, and so, you know, FAU, you're right there. And the thing that sucks about your schedule is that, you know, and this is where Bernadette needs to get sent to Guantanamo. Um, <laughs> you guys only play Dayton once, yeah. and it's at Dayton. And, like, right now, so, like, Dayton is 25th in the net. So, you know, if you play somebody at home top 30, that's a quad one game. So, like, we get two quad one games against Dayton, and – you know, you guys, like right now, you only have one quad one game scheduled. Whereas, like, let me pull up VCU real quick. I mean, we've got one, two, three, four quad one games remaining. Um, and so it's like, you guys are kind of up a creek. But it also depends on, like, like maybe St. Joe's pops into the top 30. You know, maybe VCU. I mean, I'm quite certain that VCU is going to finish in the top 75. So this game on Wednesday is, you know, overwhelmingly likely to be quad one for you. I got more so faith in you say... guys being top 75 than Billy Lang getting top 30, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, I don't I don't know. I think St. Joe's is, St. Joe's is, like, you can just tell they've got the goods to, like, just go on an absolute rampage. They're Billy um, Lang proof. Are they Billy Lang Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's because he's got, he's just got dudes now. I mean, they just, they have players all over the place. And now that Chris Sondike guy, uh, the seven foot freshman, you know, he's back and he's their backup center. And the dude is just, 
enormously talented. I don't know what kind of strings Billy Lang was pulling to get that kind of talent in there, but he's done a good job. So it, it you know, it depends on what the A10 does. Um, and ideally you want the top of the league. So like in your case, you'd want like VCU Dayton, you want Dayton to stay in the top 30 or ideally get into the top 15. Um, you want, um, you know, probably Mason Duquesne, you know, to, to go on a tear, um, and just beat the rest of the teams and, you know, and not just beat them, but like win by a lot. Like you'd be surprised like how much like the Mountain West kept on, like the top of the Mountain West after conference play last year kept on getting better and better and better because they just kept on beating dog shit teams. Sorry, if, you know, I don't know if the language is, is kosher yeah. or not. Knock but, it the hell out. You're all good. Um, <laughs> Fucking asshole. Um, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that <laughs> no. that was, that, that was going to be kind of one of my questions. Um, I guess, and you already brought it up, but I've talked to a few people the fact that even projected going into the season, Dayton, St. Joe's, and Bonas were pretty much universally considered top four or top five at the worst. You know, you throw Duquesne and VCU in there, a lot of moving parts with VCU, but Dayton, Bana, and St. Joe's, people pretty much assume that they would be good and that they would be in the top three. For those three teams to only be playing each other once is yeah. just kind of malpractice on the it's and we the fact that we would play St. Joe's twice almost every season and they were bad for a while they had a good team in 20, 2014 but for the most part like when we've been good St. Joe's has been bad and we've still played them twice and now both teams are good and they only play each other once we only play Dayton once and St. Joe's and Dayton only play each other once um so i mean it, it's those are that's just getting in your own way that's shooting yourself in the foot as a conference costing you maybe a bid millions of dollars um so if bernadette gets sent to guantanamo and i put you in charge and we all say sure you're the you're the a10 dictator do you go to 16 games like do you um kind of chain leave a, a couple weeks open at the end of the season how do you what would be your ideal way to fix the A10? Because it's this is kind of uncalled for to um, be costing, possibly costing yourself bids only because you don't know how to schedule. Yeah. So the biggest thing that like Rothstein brings up, for example, is like have the like the, the last four games or something like that be contingent on like where everybody is at a certain point in like you know mid to early February. The problem with that is that <clears throat> every team has to have a certain amount of, like every school wants a certain amount of home games. And so it's like, all right, let's say you played at Dayton in the first, like that's your scheduled game. Right. And then, you know, you, the way they have it set it up is like first place plays at fifth place. And then second place plays at third. So like you can have a scenario where you play at Dayton twice in the regular season. Um, you know, if, if they have the sort of contingency schedule set up in advance. Um, and so like that's the, that's the argument against, you know, doing a contingency based result. Um, the good thing about doing that is like, you can say at this point forward, the top four, like regardless of standings like that, this is the top four teams as of this date are going to be the top four, even if they, you know, lose all four games from there on out. Like 
they're at worst going to be a four seed. So the, you know, teams would be less freaked out about doing it. Um, you know, cause they wouldn't want to fall behind, you know, another tier of teams that are playing an easier schedule late in the season. Yeah. Um, so you could do that. The other thing is like, there was a big proposal that that was being worked on about, you know, that was supposed to start this season. And we first heard about it about a year and a half ago where, um, the mid majors, basically everybody stops, you know, everybody below the power five stops play for like one week in February and you play one home and one away game against, you know, and it's kind of based on a bracket busters type thing. Um, and, and like Bernadette said, she would leave it up to the coaches. And I think Norlander posted a quote where, and I guarantee you this was Frank Martin, hundred percent. I promise you this for this Frank Martin. He was like, this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Like, <laughs> why would anybody do this? And like, you know, it just, it was in his tone and voice. And like, you could just tell he doesn't, he doesn't understand how the process works, but like we have to get quality games, like teams that could be, you know, in the at-large picture absent, you know, just getting quality games, um, you know, otherwise have a good, you know, top 50 net ranking and lack of bad losses. You know, we have to get creative. Um, I'm not going to say too much, but I have been working with somebody who um, schedules neutral court site events Um it's, we've just talked a couple of times and we're talking about like putting a proposal or package together, but it's very early days at this point and he's got the connections, not me. So, but you know, who knows how far out that would be. The other thing too, is that like, there's too much garbage at the bottom of the A-10, like, like just compared to the mountain West as a standard. Cause like the mountain West is able to like keep it tight, so to speak. Yeah. Um, you know, because they, they've always got like four or five like top 50 schools and then they don't have too many schools like in the bot like below 200. So the the opportunity or the, the chances for bad losses is kept small. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. So St. Louis needs to go. Uh, Fordham, <laughs> yeah, Fordham based, needs to go. It's based on 2024 only. <laughs> so like St. Louis gets relega- relegated to like the <laughs> OVC or some shit. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess one more before we get into VCU. I, I feel like in the past when Bonas has had at large caliber teams, the resume was better than the metrics. Um, like in 2018, we won at Syracuse. We beat a good Maryland team. Um, we ran through the the final part of the A-10. Like we beat um, Rhode Island. Like we had a really good resume, but the metrics weren't there. I feel like this year it's flipped. We don't have yeah. a, a good win, but our metrics are pretty damn good right now. Um, probably I think second in the A-10. If you look at Nat or Ken Palm, just ahead of St. Joe's, maybe it's flipped, but we were pretty on par with them. Um, so how does the committee weigh that? Um, how just basically if you get into like resume versus metrics, how, how those two things are weighed. Yeah. So the, the biggest priority in terms of their selection, so that you got to remember the committee selects the teams first and then once they're done selecting, then they go back and seed. So selection, the priority is always going to be resume quality. Um, so your quad one wins, your quad two, you know, how many bad losses do you have? That sort of thing. And they'll look at, uh, the little metrics like the KPI and strength of record, which is like a sort of a ranking of resume quality. Um, and then, you know, 
but the the net ranking and the like Ken Palm and stuff helps for selection. Like Utah State, Utah State last year was a great example. They were 17th or 18th in the net, um, but they were like two and four in quad one. They had two quad four losses, um, and you know they still got a bid. I think you know I think the thing that like they maybe would have gotten in anyway if their metrics weren't so good. Like maybe if they were like 50th, they could have still like probably been like right on the cut line. But they were kind of like they ended up a 10 seed. They were pretty safe at that point. Almost everybody had them in. Um, I had them on the nine line. So most people had them in the nine ten range. Um, you know, because the the sort of the efficiency metrics kind of put them over the top. But it is a secondary thing, um, and that's where you guys like you know you guys are kind of in a rough spot because if resume quality is the biggest factor and you guys only have one quad one game right now, maybe two, uh, if you know, like VCU, um, you know, and then depending on what happens in the eight ten tournament. Um, but then at that point, like maybe your quad, like your, your second first or second quad one win may come in an eight ten championship game and then it wouldn't matter. So, yeah. Um, but you, you know, your metrics, like right now you're 65th in the net. And I think you're kind of somewhere similar in Ken Palm, although unfurled you and I have been, and me and a 10 stats have been working on this. You know, the thing you have to keep in mind with Ken Palm is that up until like mid February, um, the Ken Palm rankings are still somewhat tied to preseason projections. Not like the majority of it is, is results at this point. Um, but you know, keep in mind that, like the adjusted efficiency part of the net um, is not going to 100% track with what Ken Palm has um, because the, the adjusted efficiency side of the net right now is just pure results. And Ken Palm still has a little bit of preseason work in there. So I think this will probably be our second best chance at getting a Q1 win after obviously going on the road to Dayton. So let's get right into it. The last time I watched VCU was them against Memphis, and they lost mm-hmm. to Memphis at home. But as you know, VCU looks a lot different than that game. And while VCU hasn't played an insanely tough schedule since that game, they have looked a lot more impressive. So what have you seen out of VCU in the second half of the month with Joe Bamazil and Sean Barristow coming back for the Rams? Yeah, um, I think that the – the defense, and this is before Banasil and, and Barristow came back, the defense was kind of pretty far ahead of where Ryan Odom expected it to be because he's an offensive-minded guy. Um, and I would say, you know, their defense at Utah State last year was okay. It was, like, fine. It was nothing special. And he depends on just having, a, like, a scorching hot, like, offense. Um, and then the offense was behind where he wanted it to be. Um, and I think, you know, in part because Barristow and Banasil weren't playing um, I think the big, like, the thing about Bamasil is that he's, like, this extra added layer of, like, like, you. everybody remembers when he was at GW. Like, he's, like, this sort of career 37%-ish, like, three-point shooter, but it's never, like, 37% in any one game for him. It's either he's six for eight from three, and he's, like, got, like, 25-plus points, or he's, like, one for six, and he's got, like, you know, six turnovers and one assist or something like that. Um, you know, that like it's it's better for VCU than it was for him at George Washington because at GW he had to be the guy. Um and if he was off, then GW was kind of screwed. But like VCU has other guys 
Um, so if Damasiel is not having a great night, you know, they still have defenses still have to honor him and, and, you know, play out on him out to 25 feet or so. Um, and that's what, like, the thing about Ryan Odom is that he wants the floor spread. Um, if you're clogging the, the paint, um, you know, and we're just going to shoot over top of you, assuming you make threes, uh, which we haven't been great at, to this point of the season, um, but it's it's getting better. And now, you know, we've added two point three two three-point shooters back to the mix. Um, but the big thing, I think, I think the biggest thing from a consistency basis is Sean Bairstow because, A, he was with Shulga at Utah State. And those guys just, they're like, they're best friends. They're roommates. They go everywhere together. They're basically like brothers at this point. Um, and, you know, because they're both international guys. And so they, they just go everywhere and do everything together. They were pretty much a package deal coming to BCU. Um, and so, you know, Shulga just kind of looked lost at times. Um, and even Sean Barristow mentioned this in the last post-game press conference that, like, Max Shulga tends to get sloppy when he gets really tired. Um, and he had to play so many minutes early in the season for VCU that he was turning the ball over and missing more open shots than he normally would. Um, and so, like, Barristow and Shulga just know where to be, and they know where to put guys on the offense. Um, and then the, the big thing with Barristow is that he is a wing, but yet he's also 6'8", and so if he's got a size mismatch, which he usually does, he will just, like, they'll spread the, everybody else out on the corner, like, on the perimeter, and they'll just get the ball into him back to the basket, and he just, he's got this little turnaround where if you can shoot over him, he's, like, shooting that, like, a 65-70% clip, which is exactly what he did against Gardner-Webb. So, like, the offense is loosening up. It's not there yet, but, I mean, it's that's kind of like a fair, you know, it's not fair for it to expect it to be because Bamis has only been back for three games and um, Barristow's only been back for two. So it's just, you know, it, it depends. Like, it's going to click, and it's all going to happen for VCU. It's just whether that happens tomorrow or on Wednesday night at 9 o'clock um, or whether that happens on, like, January 23rd, it will depend on where VCU's trajectory is for the season. Yeah, uh, I mean, I feel like it's a Barry Evans game. And I thought that even before you said that, but, you know, I, I was looking at their lineup, Barristow, a 6'8 wing. Um, the Bonnies need to play Evans and Asa together. Um, and, you know, we'll we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, but, like I really think if you're talking size mismatch on the wing, this is a game where the six eight Evans, really good defender, needs to be out there quite a bit. Is it a big uh like I, I guess uh when you think of VCU the last ten years, Bona fans have been watching, you know, from Shaka Smart in the tree all the way down, you know, it's the aggressive, it's long, it's active on defense, they're turning you over, they're getting out in transition, um, they're making you make mistakes. Is the the flow and just the style and the culture, could you tell from day one that it was totally different? Or is it yeah. not as jarring as maybe we think it might be? No, it's definitely different. It yeah. feels different. Um, but that being said, Ryan Odom has talked pretty openly about how they've been working on like implementing that sort of like Shaka Smart style um, trapping and pressing. And they've been trying it 
a little bit the past couple games. I don't think they're at the point, or maybe I could be wrong. I don't think they're at the point yet where it would be that successful against St. Bonaventure. That would not be the team that I would want to like roll that out against because you guys have just like ball handlers all over the place. Um, but so, yeah, you're going to notice um, a, a big difference. The one thing, I mean, VCU's defense, I mean, I think we're, uh, let's see, what's the rank here on um, field goal percent? So field goal percentage defense nationally, um, we're 24th in the country. So like in terms of making people miss shots, we're pretty good. Um, it's just not the same. You know, it's not the trapping. Like we're 272nd nationally and turning other teams over. So it's it's just a different. It's just making yeah. teams take bad shot, getting making them play late in the shot clock. Um, that's kind of like the defense is good, but just in a different way. I think you guys will be much less frustrated playing against us because I know everybody thinks that BCU used to foul a lot, and I'm not going to get into that discussion. But like, it's it it's just well, not like, they uh, sure. I mean, that's that's a whole other podcast. Um, but it, it's not gonna it's not gonna feel that same way. Um, of course, I say that now and then watch. You know, Wednesday, it's that's <laughs> like it's gonna be the exact same that thing that happens just because I said it wouldn't. I have to ask one more. I would be remiss if I let you get off without blo- gloating, not bloating, although it is the holidays. I am very bloated. I feel a little bloated, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you had your coach leave, took your best players to Penn State, and you guys mm-hmm. lost two games on purpose just so you could get revenge. Ah, How yeah. awesome. How awesome was it to stick it to your ex-coach? Um, how cool was it to watch that game? What did you do for it? I mean, that has to be the best, maybe the best non-conference. Like, I feel really awesome and confident and like, you know, I really want to glow and rub it in now, especially after they tweeted out a picture, like calling themselves Havoc. I would have blown a gasket had anyone done that for Bonas. So it must've been awesome to really get revenge immediately on him. I think you talk to different VC fans, they feel differently about it. I don't give a shit. Like, honestly, like I really like it felt a little bit good because Mike Rhodes did act pretty strange. Like he was randomly just blocking VCU fans who had never right. interacted with him on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Um, and like was kind of like made some comments. <laughs> yeah. Just, just was like acting pretty strange. And apparently like the more you, you dig around after he left, like the more I kind of heard from inside the program that he, like was not the nice guy that he like made himself out to be, which, you know, was pretty surprising Um, that, you know, so sure. Yeah. That felt pretty good. Um, I did like, honestly, like watching Ace Baldwin and Nick Kern like struggle and be frustrated because they had, you know, lost three games in that tournament at that point. Um, You know, the, it, it hurt me a little bit because I'll always be appreciative of what they did for the program. Um, You know, regardless of how much crap was talked on Twitter, you know, from ACE and like the families and stuff like that. Um, you know, when, when the guys decided to transfer, um, I'm still good friends with one of the, with, J- uh, Jalen Deloach's dad. We talk like, you know, at least a couple times a week. Um, so, you know, like it was nice to be able to say like, yeah, just because you go to a power five school does not mean that like, you're automatically going to be better. Um, and like, I knew like when Mike Rhodes left, I just didn't understand. Like 
I wasn't hurt. I was just confused because it was like, dude, you're going to a much worse program, like in like in the middle of nowhere. And like I, one of the players' parents that I talked to that went on an official visit was like, man, this place is like they went to visit, you know, State College and and they were like, this place is kind of scary, like, you know, for like a young, you know, especially for like young African-American men, like, you know, you go like five minutes outside town and it's not the most welcoming environment and it's very hard to get to. And it's not like their facilities for basketball aren't great. And so it was like, all right, congratulations on doing what's best for you or whatever. I guess you got the bag, but you know, I just feel like, you know, it was a downgrade in terms of coaching position. And then like, I, I was more anxious because I didn't know who was up next when Mike Rhodes left. Once we got Odom, I was like, oh, this is like, yeah, we're going to take a hit. But like the, the team, if Mike Rhodes had stayed this year, probably would have gotten more results immediately. But over the long term, like Odom, like once we got him, I was like, man, I, I could really care less what, what yeah. Penn State does or what he does. Sure, they may end up getting bids to the NCAA tournament, but I feel like Odom is going to take ECU to the highest place it's been since since the shock of smart years. It just might take yeah. a year or two to get there. Especially since he had good players to bring right over and they could play immediately too from Utah State. Um, and Yeah, you know, I mean... It's a good, good transition to have that because you don't always have that. I mean, Shulga, I mean, what's his... Um, like, he's on track to be first team all A10. I mean, his offensive rating is 124. Um, and he's shooting 40% from three at a high volume. So it's like he's, he's top 20 nationally in true shooting percentage, offensive rating, minutes, assists, and threes. Yeah. He's like, and he's, yeah, free throw percentage. He's shooting 92% from the line. Um, at, you know, and, and he gets to the line at, at a very, very, very high clip. Um, so, you know, like you said, uh, you know, we, we made out pretty good. Um, you know, there's in terms of roster, you know, the, the one hole I would say for VCU is, is kind of the big, like getting it, you know, we wanted Efton Reed, um, and we lost out at the last second him to Wake Forest. Mm. So, you know, I would say that the five position is, is the biggest weakness. Um, uh, but it. even like Toby Lawal. Like they started playing Toby Lawal at the four, but he's been so good, even though he's only six eight. He's he's the guy with the fifty inch vertical, um, literally like fifty inch. I'm not even exaggerating. Um, and he's only six eight, but he's been so good at the five that they just had to put him there because he's just been dynamite. Um, but that being said, you know I can see Venning, um, you know, kind of pushing him around a little bit, um, and you get Toby and uh, Lawal in foul trouble. Uh, then, you know, and, and then Furman in foul trouble, uh, then BC is kind of up a creek because uh, we really don't have any reputable bigs after that. Mm -hmm. Just one quick question for you, finally, Rusty, before we let you get out of here. Who is going to be the toughest for BC to stop on the Bonnies? You think it's Mike Adams Woods up top, Benning down low? Who are you most afraid of? Um, I would say, um, I would say Venning is the guy I'm most worried about because uh, of, of what I just mentioned. Um, I think that we're not going to help uh, um, if we don't have to because Odom understands efficiency um, and he understands that, you know, open threes are, you know, worse to give up than, than open twos. And so I think they're, you know, I mean, they'll help a little bit, 
but they're not going to help to where they're leaving like guys like Adams Woods or um, SM Boost or whoever, you know, open for three um, because otherwise you guys are just going to kill us from range. So, you know, we're kind of, our bigs are kind of, kind of be on an Island with him and he's just a big boy. I mean, he can catch it. He can pin you down Celia and, you know, just easily get, you know, two footers or, you know, right at the basket where it's just, he just puts it up. So that's the thing that scares me. It scares me the most in terms of matchup. So it's fair for Bona fans to get frustrated when we eventually double Furman down low and leave like Bearstow and Shulga open on the perimeter. That would be the dumbest thing you could possibly okay. do. Oh yeah. Well. And, um, yeah. And that's, you, you just, you don't want to do that because now with, with Banasil back, and Bearstow back, like there's, they're going to be like five shooters on the floor, four to five three point shooters on the floor at a time, and mm-hmm. we will, we'll kill you if you do that. Um, well, so I don't recommend don't. it. I hope yeah. we don't. Exactly. Well, once again, Rusty Tutton from Bracket Forecast. You can follow him on Twitter if you don't already at Bracket Forecast. It's spelled just like it sounds. Thank you again, Rusty, for joining us, and we'll be seeing you again later this month as well. All right, sounds good, guys. Best of luck except not really you guys can all all go to hell except also you guys are kind of cool all right (laughs) and saturday you can root for us at least yeah yeah well no i i will i will be rooting for you guys the rest of the season because i need your net ranking to get up there (laughs) awesome rusty rusty's the best vcu fan uh he sometimes sometimes during during the game if we're losing i can i can definitely be a little bitch but beyond that you know i'm I, i think i'm pretty good you're fair uh, with your with your forecast for sure. Definitely. Appreciate it, guys. Merry Thanks. Merry January sixth to you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you as well, my fellow Confederate. Well, I want to thank everybody. I do love Virginia. I love Virginia. I love you all. Thank you, Ohio. Thank you, Dayton. Thank you. If you haven't been paying attention to what sports fans like insulting each other about in the last three years, you you, you need to see what has become a very popular insult, maybe more so in college football, but I also see it in college basketball. I'm guilty of it. Most of you are probably guilty of this. Wondering where was insert fan base here on January 6th? Merry January 6th, everybody. The insurrection three-year anniversary. I can't believe it. Three years since Jaron Holmes went off against St. Joe's in an empty Riley Center. That is still going to be the funniest thing about insurrection day is that for some reason we played st joe's in the middle of the afternoon (laughs) on a wednesday and and he just torched them for like 38 points i believe it was Mm -hmm. (laughs) that that is really the indelible mark that will last on our country's legacy is where were you when jaron holmes went off for 38 against st joe's and you know what? I was looking up when Adams Woods was was on his heater, other very, very efficient games, because he was like 10 of 10 and then 10 of 11 or something like that. In that game, that January 6th game, it, we Bona fans always remember Jaron Holmes going off. Jalen Attaway had 24 points on 11 of 12 <laughs> shooting. Really? <laughs> 11 of 12 <laughs> shooting. Yes. He had, he had 24 points on 11 of 12 shooting, seven assists, or four assists, seven rebounds and zero turnovers so i want to give J- flight 33 just as much credit as holmes in that one he that's as as efficient as you will get 
I think that's like how everybody also forgets that the insurrectionists were also pissed off about the Georgia Senate election results that also happened on January 5th of 2021. But that gets into our big expose, our big deep dive here on SB Unfurled and Friends. We haven't really done something like this in a while, if at all. I mentioned it where it seems like every fan base says, where were you on January 6th? Where where was uh, Bruce Pearl on January 6th? I've done it to Dayton fans. I've done it to DCU fans. I did it about Bruce Pearl. I've done it all the time. You've done it all the time. But I wanted to know, like, who exactly is the fan base that is most likely to be at the insurrection? Who's the most likely one to be one of these J6 people that are rotting away in jail? As some of you may say, unjustly, which I would say, uh, enjoy your stay. <laughs> but, it, you know, I wanted to quantify it somehow because, you know, it gets to be a little bit of a baseless accusation. Like, oh, all you are January, all you are insurrectionists, like VCU fans get called it. And I think, well, wait a minute, Richmond's actually pretty liberal. There's probably not many VCU fans storming the Capitol. So, what I wanted to do is look at this, and I wanted you to tell me what you think about my methodology for this. I did two main piles of information. I looked at where people were arrested and where their hometowns were from, from January 6th, like where they were living and who, who was arrested on January 6th. And I also looked at the 2020 election results. And yeah, I just wanted to compare those and see who in the A-10 is most likely to be an insurrectionist. Hmm. I'm looking forward to this. Do you want me to make predictions or do you want to just get... Well, yeah, I was just wondering what you think of that methodology. Because I want to just make it more than just, oh, we know one really loud VCU fan who's right wing. Uh, Oh, but but let's see. Let's see. We know one... We know uh, the former Dayton blogger who was like a white nationalist. But, you know, do they represent their whole fan bases? So so that's why I wanted to see if you think that's a good way of trying to make this a little, a little, you know, neutral. So you looked up who got arrested and where they're from. Essentially. I mean, I didn't, I I will, I will say this, this is, um, there's several different sites. Um, I know GW did has a, as a research center that does this on like a, an academic level, university of Maryland. There are several other, um, that I'm thinking of. There's Jan six data is a Twitter account that I use to help me really parse through some of the geographical data for this. So if we're going just by who was arrested, the number one place, surprisingly, is Chicago. Chicago had 22 people in the greater area. However, only seven are in Chicago's, and Chicago's easily the biggest city other than New York City in the A-10. So I feel like that's a little bit misleading, especially since most of them were arrested and they're from outside of Chicago. You got to go per capita, right? Per capita. And I, I will say... This will be interesting to see what Bonnie's fans feel. This will be uh, interesting depending on where your allegiances lie. We are the only A-10 school where our county voted in favor of Donald Trump. We were Trump plus 30. Every other county from Dayton at plus two for Biden to GW, which would be Washington, D.C., all the way to plus 87 for Biden. So we are the only Trump county in the A-10 conference. So that may or may not surprise you. That may or may not be good news to some of you, but that's that's the cold hard fact. I am I am not editorializing on that. We are the only I'm, Trump voting county. I'm not surprised by that because <laughs> a ton, a lot of cities. You got two in Philly. You got New York City, um, Rhode Island, and uh, UMass Amherst are up way up in the northeast. You have Pittsburgh. 
Um, you have G GW in Washington, DC. You have the other ones I would be curious about were like Davidson, George Mason, and really that's it because Richmond's a pretty big yes. city as well. And St. Louis is so, obviously a big city. So kind of by default, I'm not surprised by that. So this is a break from Ken Palm data. So we're getting into some other data. Let's just try to rattle through some of this quickly. By the way, Dayton and Davidson are the only swing districts in the Atlantic 10. Okay. Dayton was Dayton's County, I think it was Montgomery County, plus two for Biden. Davidson's a little weird since Davidson straddles both um, Charlotte's County and then a rural county. So it was very drastic. Like Charlotte's County was very pro-Biden. Then the rural county, Iredell County, is very pro-Trump. So even down to Biden plus three if you combine those two counties. So I'm okay. getting on my Steve Kornacki shit right now, so guys, so gotcha. buckle up. Let's gotta, let's roll up the sleeves here and get the big board out. The big no. board, yeah. So big board. So here's let's just get down to the rankings. So I between this is not a total hundred percent statistical like neutral Ken Palm. I had to put in a little bit of massaging and understanding the the data here. So what I had as the least likely to harbor insurrectionists that would be UMass Amherst. Okay. There was one person from Amherst actually arrested in the insurrection, but there's only five from Western Mass, and Western Mass is pretty rural, so I thought that would be a little higher. Actually, from the majority of people from Massachusetts that were arrested and charged are from Southeastern Mass, which I consider more roadie territory. So I, I put Massachusetts at, five, at the bottom, followed by St. Louis, which I still want to know Travis Ford's whereabouts, but... St. Louis only had six in the area. By the way, that included this Cardinals fan named the Rally Runner who ran laps around Bush Stadium. Apparently, he was running laps around the uh, rotunda in the Capitol and, and all that. So, <laughs> so the Rally Runner was one of those six in St. Louis, but apparently not many others. At third, I did put Loyal because of their very pro-Biden voting record. And, you know, only seven in Chicago, fewer per capita, like I mentioned. So I would put them, what's that? 14th, 13th, 12th. I have us at 11th because there were no, there was nobody arrested in Cattaraugus or Allegheny counties. Some in Erie and really, I thought I heard uh, a SWAT team or the FBI raided some guy's house in a lane because he was down there. Maybe, maybe it was just part of an, an investigation. But um, as be, far yeah. as it's been publicly reported, only five that I counted in the Bonaventure Greater area, which had been in Erie and I believe Wyoming counties. I got a tie here for what's this? 15, 14, 13, 12. 10th place. This is right at the uh, right at the um, Pillow Fighter cutoff line. Pillow Fight, yeah. LaSalle and St. Joe's. So they had 12 in the Philadelphia area, fewer per capita than some places like Pittsburgh. So <laughs> they dropped down. There is a tiebreaker here, though. LaSalle is ahead of St. Joe's because Representative Brian Fitzpatrick went to LaSalle and he voted not to impeach Trump. He's a Republican. So LaSalle gets a little bump there because they have a sitting member Congress who Congress who's a little bit of an insurrectionist. Number nine is Davidson at seven people. North Carolina surprisingly was pretty low on these lists of, of people being, you know, arrested for the insurrection. So, yeah, they, they were they were pretty low, like I mentioned, um, and they were pretty swing districts. So I got them at eight. So, you know, we did the first half of the rankings for the A-10. What do you think so far? All I'm thinking about is the guy from St. Louis, and I'm thinking about <laughs> – like him wearing the Billiken mascot when he was like in the Capitol building. Like, you know, you saw all the people like the QAnon shaman and all those people. What if it was just a Billiken ma mascot, like walking around in there? I know, right? Great. The visual. <laughs> like, I, I just can't get that out of my head. A visual of the actual Billiken storming the Capitol. <laughs> 
Yeah, and along with Travi do doing it too. So we are at number eight on the list, and at number eight is Rhode Island. Rhode Island is number eight on this list. Only four people in the entire state of Rhode Island were arrested in the insurrection. One of them was from North Kingstown, which is right near where Rhodey is. However, Rhodey gets a huge boost, a little bit because of that UMass, um, the Massachusetts thing from Southeastern Mass. But also, Mike Flynn. Mike Flynn is a Rhode Island alum. Really? He Ooh. is a Rhodey alum. Yes, sir. Lieutenant General Mike Flynn, the QAnon commander in charge there. He is, <laughs> he, went to, he went to Rhode Island. I didn't know that. Yep, there you go. Uh, let's get into some of these little middle ones here. You know, this is all kind of splitting hairs here. Richmond, VCU, and Duquesne are all around the five, six, seven. They didn't get a double buy in my rankings. So they had seven in each of their uh, respective areas. I give the Richmond and VCU ones a little bump just because they're smaller areas. Fordham is fourth. Two people in Manhattan, none in the Bronx. However, they got to be pretty high because we know who went to Fordham, right? Who did his first two years at Florida? Donald Trump himself. So he's got to be number four. (laughs) Number three is is George Mason. I feel like they're victims of being just too close to the scene of the crime. Um, 21 people in their area, as well as George Washington. But George Washington gets number two because Roger Stone, Kellyanne Conway are GW alums. So that leaves number one. That leaves number one, and I did not want to do this. I thought it was going to be confirmation bias, but I feel like with these metrics, it's been proven. Dayton is number one. 13 people in the Dayton area, and Dayton's pretty small. That's a high number. Jim Jordan's district is just north of Dayton. We know he's uh, got his hands dirty there. So oh. it was closer than I thought, but that's according to the Dayton Daily News. Our buddy David Jablonski, he's a sports reporter for them. I'm not putting this on him, but – a Dayton Daily News article does say that there are 13 people in the Dayton area charged in the insurrection. So that's a pretty high number. I mean, when you compare that to 22 in all of Chicago, which is like right. 10 times the size of Dayton. So I didn't want to do it. I didn't want it to just be a, a a Blackburn thing. But you know what? That's how it turned out. So what do you think? What do you think of the rankings? I think in many ways, this kind of mirrors the A-10 uh basketball conference because Dayton number <laughs> one um Dayton's clearly the number one team right now in the A10 you also have Duquesne who looks somewhat promising but is not for real like they were they had a chance at a double buy but they just were outside the cut line and then they get probably knocked out in the first round of the A10 tournament on Friday so I, I see a lot of mirroring you know like the the fan base versus the actual team performances this year yeah, I think so. I, you know, just want to know where. I like it. I, I still want to know where Travi Ford and Keith Dambrot were on January 6th. I just And what was know. the game that got, the, the, there was a game that got canceled that day. It was, was it UMass at GW? UMass, UMass was playing at, at GW Nate. that day. That's true too. Okay. So, <laughs> and, and UMass's coach was Matt McCall then, right? Matt McCall. Oh, wait okay. a minute. That's a good point. Because if we, I listened to our buddies, the Three Bid League podcast last week, they had Matt McCall on. He said, and I quote, I am excited for January 6th. Interesting. And I've called him fake Jared Kushner because I think he resembles Jared Kushner. That's right. What is right. he actually Jared Kushner or is Jared Kushner Matt McCall? Are they brothers? Does he have some sort of inside scoop on this stuff too? Probably not. 
I have never seen them in the same place at the same time. I will just say that it, you know, that quote from Matt McCall is 100% accurate. Was he referring to the fact that Saturday, January 6th is the first A-10 basketball day on USA? Or was he referring to the three-year anniversary of the insurrection? I'll let you guys figure it out. Lofton settles for the deep three. Wow. And hits. <laughs> How about that? The junior left me off the first team. Take that. What a bucket with three seconds to go. So we had our SB Unfurled and Friends meets Meet the Press segment right there for a very particular reason. We are going to be very close to D.C. on the three-year of the insurrection. That'll be in Richmond. So once we play at VCU, we will go to just outside of Richmond, Richmond, north of Richmond. We will go just outside the city to Henrico County to play the Spiders of Richmond. And Richmond's been pretty good this year considering they were picked towards the bottom half of the A-10 They've had some up and down performances in the non-conference, but they have some of our conference's best wins. They knocked off UNLV by quite a bit. They did a pretty good job against Charlotte. And yeah, they've had a pretty solid overall performance compared to what their preseason expectations are. So when you look at Richmond and what you think about playing on the road there against them, what are you what are you expecting out of this game? So Richmond has two really, really good players. Neil Quinn, uh, like a power forward center. Uh, he's been awesome this year. And then Jordan King, combo guard. Uh, I think he runs point for them. He's been awesome as well. They also have Bailey and Bigelow. Those are like their four best players. After that, there is a pretty big drop off. Um, and Richmond is, you know, it's kind of similar to the other Mooney teams that we've seen not remember the teams with uh Gilliard you know Quinn isn't the the big man that maybe they've had in the past but he has been awesome this year so you know I, I think they struggled very mightily with with SUNY Amherst which surprised me um yeah and then they they pounded Lafayette who's terrible as well um but they have a really long break they don't play Wednesday like we do um, so while we're right. in in the Siegel Center dealing with VCU, they got that day off. And, you know, that that's kind of odd, but there is an odd number of A-10 teams now. So not everyone can play on opening day. They're the one team, I believe, that doesn't play. So um, they'll be very well rested. Defense this year, surprisingly, is better than their offense. Um, but both are above average. They don't turn the ball over at all. They're They're really good at not making mistakes and they're very, very good uh, effective field goal percentage, top 50 in the country. Um, they're top 103-point and two-point percentage. They take care of the ball really well. Um, they kind of slow it down a little bit. So it's it's the Richmond teams that we're used to seeing. And um, I think the key is going to be Venning versus Quinn down low. So, you know, we talked a lot about Venning when it comes to VCU, taking advantage of VCU's weaknesses. It's going to be a little different against Richmond. We're going to have to count on Venning to kind of neutralize Neil Quinn, who's been one of the best players in the A-10 uh, so far this season. I think VCU smells more like a Venning breakout performance. I mean, well, breakout performance subject, uh, you know, considering that he plays pretty well for us already. But I think it's Venning's, Venning's going to be the focal point against VCU. This game against Richmond smells like a Charles Pride 
double double. Richmond like is one of the worst teams in offensive rebounding, so he can definitely gobble up the boards and pre- prevent them from getting second chance opportunities. They're also, you know, just overall not too tremendous at uh, at defense. They have some good defense um, from three, but their two point defense and their blocking is not necessarily the toughest. So I think they yeah, he can definitely take advantage of that and just maybe whoever goes off, whether it's Mike Adams Woods or maybe Banks finally has a breakout game, maybe, you know, whoever does it against VCU, it'll be Charles Pride's turn to take over down in Richmond because this is something that we're trying to do for the second straight year is win two Richmond games in a three or four game in a one-week span, and that would be a huge achievement because even though Richmond is not exactly an A-10 favorite, they're doing better. Um, Jordan mm-hmm. King is definitely a very important player to watch in this conference, but they're not exactly, you know, they're not Dayton. They're not St. Joe's. They're not us. So yeah. this is still going to be a tricky game, but it will be a very, I think it would be a solid win if we're able to pull it off only two point favorites for Richmond at home. So that's essentially a coin toss, but I do think this will be a, uh, a chance for Charles pride to really take over. Yeah. And I think, you know, Mooney's system at Richmond, you need a point guard that, uh, can really run the offense and be the leader, be the quarterback of that team. Um, and I think they have that this year. And you also need a, a skilled big man who's a good passer out of the post. And they definitely have that in Neil Quinn. Neil Quinn, seven-footer, is 71st in the country in assist rate. He is excellent and excellent passer out of the post and that really really worries me if we double the post on him um watch out because he will find the open man immediately and make you pay so we talked about doubling the post against vcu again for a different reason don't want to do that because they'll kick it out and make us pay same thing with richmond if you double Quinn, he's going to make you pay. And, you know, they have guys like King and Bigelow who are very good, both top 500 in the country in three-point percentage. King is 39% from deep. Bigelow is 40%. So another good uh, game we need out of Venning and Brown, I think. Um, Quinn's going to draw fouls, and that that really worries me. Um, so you, you need Brown's defense, maybe even more than Venning's offense in a game like this. So that'll be interesting. I'll be really, really watching to see if we double the post in either, either of these games. I hope we don't. I hope we're act. Just trust your guys. We have such long athletic wings on the perimeter. And, you know, I, I feel like if we double the post and they kick it out, sometimes it's slow rotation. So hopefully we don't see any of that and uh, we can kind of neutralize Quinn in that way. Yeah, that'll be important. I think it'll also be important for somebody like Moses Flowers to come in and frustrate Jordan King. I mean, that does also seem like a chance for Barry Evans because, like you said, he's positionless, and it might be good to throw, you know, somebody of Barry Evans' uh, height on Jordan King. You know, even though it's a six eight versus a six footer, if Barry Evans can stay with him uh, speed wise, that would be something that I think could definitely frustrate King. And then mm-hmm. I think it's also crashing the boards and not turning the ball over because one of the few teams in the country that's better at not turning the ball over than us is Richmond. I mean, they, they don't get stolen just about as often as we don't. And they're even more clean with the ball, non steal turnovers. They're second in the country in turnover rate on offense. They, they don't Mm -hmm. turn the ball over at all. So they, 
they're they're going to be tough to turn over. So if we're not turning them over, I wouldn't want to get in foul trouble on the road because then we have right. you know like the situation you said with with Quinn or with um with Venning and Brown getting into trouble as we always try to avoid. But I do think overall our height should be an advantage, not even just down low, but with um but with the wings. I think with Asa, with Pride. With Barry, I think those guys can frustrate them as well. And I think it will just have to be more of our depth and taking advantage of the fact that there isn't really a great number four like we've seen out of them with Tyler Burton. No, I agree. And their backcourt is really small as well. Jordan King's six feet, and then they're two, uh, only 5'10". Um, they have Jason Roach, who's decent. He's 6'5". Um, but you know, when you go from VCU, VCU is really, really big on the wings and, uh, you know, Richmond doesn't quite have that size on the wing. So, uh, definitely a different type of, of team than VCU in that sense. So, uh, it'll be interesting to see how we adapt and how our substitution patterns work. Maybe Evans does go back to the four, um, against Richmond and hopefully play some three against VCU. So I'll, I'll be keeping my eye out for that. But yeah, I think we can have a bit of an advantage uh, size-wise in the backcourt. We know what that music is. We haven't heard it in quite a while, but you know what it's time for. A final forecast. Emphasis on the four because the Bonnies will be in Richmond for four days. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Today's final forecast is sponsored by Aladdin's Castle. Thank you, Aladdin's Castle, for paying us the big bucks so we can put together this incredible production. Let's get right into the weather on Wednesday. and This is a old man complaint tip time. 9 o'clock p.m. Are you kidding me? I'm going to be dozing off at halftime of this game against VCU. But in Richmond at tip-off, we have 39 degrees Fahrenheit, no precipitation, 64% will be not much wind either. So a little bit on the chilly side, but nothing that you're you know not used to if you're from western New York. I don't think it will affect our guys too much. Then we got two days in Richmond to enjoy. Enjoy the Thursday weather. It's going to be sunny. 47 degrees by the afternoon. Then it's going to get dipped down into the 30s after sunset. Friday, a little more cloudy. It's going to be 43 degrees in Richmond. No precipitation. And then you get to Saturday. Of course, the, the two days you have off, it's fine. No precipitation. Then you get to Saturday. It is going to be rainy. 90% precipitation on Saturday. It's going to be cold. You're going to have that gross mix of sleet and rain and snow. Uh, in the morning, it's going to be freezing temperatures. It's going to get up to 42 degrees by tip time, and it's going to be light rain. So, you know, after the game, during the game, might be icy. We'll see how that affects the guys. I don't want them slipping. We've already had enough sprained ankles this year. We don't want any more sprained ankles if it is icy in Richmond. So, you know, 44 after the game, rainy, and then at night on our ride back, it's going to get back down into the 30s. Still precipitation. Saturday looks miserable in Richmond. So let's hope we can at least get a win. And that yeah. has been the final forecast brought to you by Aladdin's Castle. By the way, I just looked up. You can buy on Etsy somebody selling an Aladdin's Castle 80s arcade vintage t-shirt from Olean. So you can go ahead and buy somebody nice. on Etsy is selling an Aladdin's Castle t-shirt. So go ahead and get that if you want. 
yeah. Beautiful. Hopefully the guys can get out of Richmond safe because there's going to be a big uh, weekend storm coming, especially on Sunday for a lot of the East Coast. I don't know if Richmond may be a little too warm for some snow, but other parts could be icy. Hopefully they travel safely on January 6th. Merry January 6th to all. I hope you enjoyed our insurrection rankings, our insurrankings. And thank you again so much for joining us here on SB Unfurled and Friends. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at SB Unfurled for some very good basketball statistical analysis. Me, I guess, at X for random, unnecessary political statistical analysis regarding college basketball teams. We're going with it. We're enjoying it. Thank you all again for joining us. Have a good night. Oh